This episode is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Just so you know, listeners, this episode does include themes of mental health and substance abuse and suicide. So if those things are triggering to you, listen at your own discretion. I'm Mary Ann Hitt, a climate strategist living in the West Virginia Hills. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, at a time when we are all experiencing so much turmoil, we're exploring and redefining the concept of loss and what it means to embrace the mystery of the future. And it's hard to believe, it's a little hard to say, but this is at least our last episode for a long time, and it might actually be our last episode ever. We shall see. But Anna Jane and I, we have had an incredible journey of bringing you stories of the emotions, the psychology, the spirituality, the personal stories around climate change. And we both have started up some new projects and are starting some new chapters in our lives. And so we are going to take no place like home into hibernation, but we are going to bring this possibly our last season to a close with a really powerful personal conversation and story, maybe the most personal one that we have ever shared. Yeah, I bet I can't even imagine what our lives are going to look like without No Place Like Home. It's been such a a solid rock in my life <laughs> to be able to have these conversations with you and with our listeners. It's really helped me in a ton of ways. So I'm so grateful for this experience in the past couple of years and so grateful for you, Marianne, and for our listeners and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, a little bit nervous about this episode because I share a lot of my own personal story over the past couple of years, which is very harrowing <laughs> at places. So yeah, I'm kind of in awe of, of what we've been able to do with this amazing community and this amazing conversation. Well, Anna Jane, I want to thank you for these... Now, I should have looked this up, uh, how many years we've been doing this podcast, but I'm going to venture to say it's been four or five. And having you alongside me in this journey of really grappling with how, as human beings, we show up in the midst of the climate crisis, trying to tackle the climate crisis, holding on to our humanity, holding on to our joy doing that in community with other folks, having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in the climate movement and beyond. It has just been such a gift. And every single conversation I have come out of it, a better person with new wisdom and new insights. And you here are taking us into the heart of your own story, which is very brave. You know, when you and I decided to um, embark on this season, I had my dad passed away in, in January and I told you that just to be real, I wasn't ready to talk about it all, all that much with the world because it's 
it's, there's a lot of pain there and a lot of vulnerability and processing that on a podcast is scary. And I, I told you, okay, I'm along for the ride. Um, and you found a couple of other very powerful voices to share this season. Um, but I, I let you know that I, I still wasn't quite ready because this is hard. And so I just want to honor you for going there in this episode because it is hard and scary to share these moments of, of loss with the world. And, and so how do you feel about, about having shared that here? It is scary for sure. To be, I mean, I'm such a huge, huge fan of uh, Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown and all these amazing women who have taught us to be uh, more vulnerable and to share the power of sharing our stories, even the, the dark and scary parts of them. So I, I'm kind of following in their lineage. Um, but it is, it is definitely pretty terrifying, mostly just because it in- involves a lot of my own experience around mental health and even substance abuse and suicidal ideation. And those are just really hard and scary topics to think about, let alone experience and talk about. And there's a huge you know, stigma still around mental health. And there's definitely a part of me that, you know, kind of the ego part of me that's like, I don't want people to think I'm less capable or I'm less, you know, all the things. But it was the people who shared their stories like Brené Brown and Glennon Doyle and, and so many others around these issues that really helped me get through the dark days. And so if my story helps other people, then I'm, you know, I'm happy to share it. And I also just want to acknowledge that one of the reasons I feel passionate about sharing my story is because I'm so many people aren't in a position where they can share, you know, their vulnerable stories. And because of my own privilege to have a pretty secure job and a really supportive family, I am able to do that. And so I I wanted to take advantage of, of that privilege to offer my story to the world in hopes that it does help someone. And so that's one of the big reasons I, I wanted to tell it. Well, it is very brave all the same. And again, I've, your bravery is something that I have always loved about you and it has, it's always inspired me. And so thank you. And in this year we have just had of, of COVID and of the climate crisis barreling through people's lives and communities, I am confident that there are so many other folks out there who really have gone into a dark place or have really struggled with the emotional and the psychological and and the spiritual implications of staring at the climate crisis head on or being directly impacted by it. And so my, my hope, and I think speaking for both of us, our hope is that this, the sharing of this story will bring, bring strength and community and help us all get the profound wisdom from these moments of loss that you and I both know lies within them as hard as that may be sometimes to, to grapple with or or face. So thank you, Anna Jane for, again, for being willing to share this with our listeners. All right, let's do it. So I'm going to tell this story in three different acts, exploring three different near death experiences that I've had all involving the sea. um, Two of which happened in 2020. But first, I wanted to tell you my shipwreck story. Have I ever told you my shipwreck story? Like not a metaphor, like a shipwreck shipwreck, like a real one? Yeah, an actual (laughs) shipwreck. (laughs) 
also you a metaphor, have but a real one. <laughs> <laughs> you have not. You have not. I would love to hear it. Oh, good. Well, you're in for a treat. I was 19 and living in New Zealand, and I'd been there off and on a year. I went home for a brief stint. Me and my best friend, Bonnie, had, we'd kind of tapped out all of the adventurous things that you do in New Zealand that tend to be very touristy and expensive. And we'd also tapped out our bank accounts. <laughs> um, but we had a break coming up and we really wanted to do something new and something on the water. And so we went on findacrew.com, which I don't advise doing. And we found a captain that was looking for crew to cross the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand. And we flew out there Lived for a month on the Golden Coast with the captain, who was like a retired American Marine who had been all around the world, and kind of prepped the boat in this harbor. And after a month, we set off to make this voyage between Australia and New Zealand. And it was beautiful. The sunsets were otherworldly. The stars were insane, and there was also Noctiluca, which is like the shimmery stuff in the water. <laughs> Bioluminescence is another way of saying it. And so at night, it would feel like you were surrounded by stars. They were like up above you and below you. There was dolphins everywhere surrounding us, and it was just a really magical, beautiful experience. About six or seven, eight days in, we got hit by a really bad storm, kind of out of the blue. Like, I remember it hadn't even shown up on the radar, you know, when we first got hit with it. And it quickly got very scary. It was five knots below a hurricane, which is definitely not a good situation. <laughs> and I was reefing the sail. And this thing called the topping lift broke, which is what holds the sail up. And the boom, which is like a big heavy thing on the bottom of the sail, falls. And it falls like, an, I don't know, inches from my head. And so it easily could have thrown me up over or killed me. And when you're in that bad of a storm, you are tied in. But if you fall over in that bad of the storm, the chances of them getting you back into the boat are very slim. Um, so I just kind of sat down in shock, like, on on the boat and just let the rain and the wind kind of pummel me until finally the captain calls me back over to the cockpit and he decides we're going to heave to, which means that you literally just lock everything up and go underboard and pray. It was the first time in his 20 years of sailing that he had ever had to do that. So that's what we did. <laughs> and we are downstairs. We no longer have a, mail, a mainsail. We have d no control of the boat, and the only thing holding you afloat at that point is the jib sail. And we are kind of looking out at this, this tiny window that's being pelted with rain, staring at the jib sail, and it starts to tear. And if you lose both of your sails in a storm like that, you turn over and you die. <laughs> like, that is the outcome, uh, barring miracles. And so we are freaking out, obviously, me and Bonnie in particular, also the captain and we're you know like we tried to get him to call in the coast guard and he's like there is not a coast guard who will come out and so we're taking shifts and watching this jib sail tear and praying that it doesn't tear all the way because we would probably not make it in that circumstance it was beyond a doubt the closest I have come to death at least up until that point 
so I, on my shift, I remember at this point I was a pretty big heathen. I'd left the church when I was like 15 or 16 and kind of put Christianity behind me and sort of started dipping my toes into Eastern spiritualities and yoga at that point, but had not prayed in, in years. And I was sitting there hugging my teddy bear because I still kept this teddy bear that my dad gave me and took it everywhere, Mr. Bear, and watching the gym sale and just like feeling the most anxiety that I had ever felt, like physically tight. And like what I would later come to learn is the feeling of a panic attack, but I didn't know that then. I just remember thinking like I can't I won't make it through this (laughs) like and like physically speaking the amount of anxiety I felt was just overwhelming and the other big thing too is the whole time I'm just playing a videotape in my head of my family my little brothers who I wouldn't see grow up my sisters my parents And finally, a wave of calm came over me, and I just out of nowhere prayed this prayer, God, if you can't calm the storm outside, calm the storm within me. And that quieted me, and I kind of came to accept the moment and just trust that if this was my time to go, then it was my time to go, and the right thing would happen. And all of that anxiety kind of dissipated. And serenity just overcame me like a drug. It wasn't a sudden faith that everything was going to be okay. It was just more of a reconciling with the present moment and that I was where I needed to be. And I think it was also the first time that I really turned toward death and maybe even started to befriend her, started to reconcile with the idea that we are, we are mortal. Yeah, I just kind of put my faith in the present moment and whatever was going to happen. And uh, we did come out of the storm. We made it through the night. The jib sail didn't tear all the way. We actually ended up basically surfing to this little island called Lord Howe Island in between Australia and New Zealand, which is paradise. We literally went from hell to heaven in like a 12-hour period. Wow, Anna Jane, that is harrowing. I have to tell you, as a person who just gets seasick easily, I really find that a terrifying, <laughs> terrifying <laughs> prospect. And I'm so glad you're still here. And I'm so glad you made it through that shipwreck. And I wonder, how has that carried forward into your life and your work beyond that moment? I have prayed that prayer (laughs) a lot the past few years, just as this torrent of terror has surrounded us, not only throughout COVID and the increasing climate disasters, also just the Trump years, like it just felt like a lot, a lot of storms. And so I did find myself praying, like, if you can't calm the storm outside, please calm the storm within me. Didn't always work, but it definitely helps a lot to remember to come back to kind of that place of centering and centering myself and trusting in some kind of uh, universal positive thing helping us get through these dark moments. 
I've had like a couple of near death experiences, two two of which I'm about to tell you. But I think when that has happened to me, and certainly that was my first one, and and one of one of the you know the others are like car wrecks or the normal kind of near death experiences. But that was my my first one, and I do think that there was just something so powerful about looking at at death and being like, okay, this this could be happening, and. And I don't know, finding some peace in it. And that has really, not that I wanted to die. I'm so glad I didn't. I never would have met you. I never would have become a climate activist. But, you know, death is a real part of our lives. And I think rather than running from it or just feeling this overwhelming sense of terror when you encounter it or somebody that you love encounters it, finding some some peace and reconciliation with it that is, I don't know, it's really, it's been important for me. Not not always great at it, but definitely important. And I will just say that also there are listeners out there who are not reconciled to it. That's okay also, you know. I mean, I think the topic of death and loss for some people is a lot more traumatic than for others. You know, my my own experience of losing my dad was was painful enough, but we lost him after after a long and beautiful life. So acknowledging and recognizing that it's um impossible to come to terms with this for some folks for what they have been through and that is also okay and i am glad for you that you've stared it in the eye for yourself and came through to the other side with some wisdom and that share that with all of us yeah that shipwreck has definitely come in useful throughout the shipwrecks of, of recent years. And, and for me, the, the most harrowing was definitely, along with a lot of people, was definitely 2020. And I'm about to share two New Year death experiences that happened last year. First is when Hurricane Sally hit our home um, in September 2020. A lot of people don't even know this, but Sally was a really bad storm that wiped out from Mobile to Navarre, a huge swath of of the Gulf Coast across, you know, Alabama into Florida. I mean, we still have tarps on on houses from that storm. And there was just so much horrible news happening that a lot of even a lot of my friends didn't know it had happened, even though it felt like we were in a war zone. And yeah, just a testament to how crazy 2020 was. One other thing that I just wanted to set this conference to show you kind of what my mindset was going into this storm was that my two days before the storm hit, my dad had been called out in a Newsweek article about him calling for the next civil war, (laughs) which would be a civil war between the left and the right. And of course, most of our listeners know my dad is a conservative megachurch pastor, so he is solidly on the right. And I am a climate activist, so I am solidly on the left, as are all my siblings. So, you know, he does things like call Democrats evil and, you know, like bedeviled and all of this like very offensive and scary stuff if you are on the opposite side you know it's like actually like dad you are literally talking about a civil war against us like against your children so you know that storm that family storm is happening as a backdrop when hurricane sally hits but first i want to tell you and our listeners, um, about my home and why it was so painful when it got so devastated by this storm. 
if there is a place in the world that is so inseparable from my life that it is a physical and spiritual part of me, it is Perdido Beach, Alabama, on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, which is where my mom also grew up spending the summers, and my grandfather had inherited it from his parents. And my family had started coming down there, I think two generations before that, where his great-grandmother would take the train down from Selma, Alabama, with her 11 children and get a mailboat from Pensacola over to this little slice of heaven in Alabama that is literally called the lost place. It's called Perdido because it was it's so tucked away that uh, the original explorers had a really hard time finding it or they would find it and then they would lose it <laughs> so they called it Perdido for gener- over a century my family had been coming down there it is very sacred to my family and it was very sacred to me because it was this constant sor- source of stability where we live is is brackish water so it's kind of where freshwater rivers and marsh meets the salt water from the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, we have a pier and a boathouse and so many precious memories growing up there. And just, it was a lot of of being lazy. It was our summertime and our vacation space. And we just had no idea how lucky we were. And when I moved down there as an adult, I realized how integral it was to who I am. The way that I just like physically felt when I would travel and then go home to Alabama, it was the way that the air felt, the saltiness, the humidity. The sunsets are insane. I see dolphins usually every day if I'm looking and ospreys and pelicans and herons all kinds of of small songbirds and and just exquisite trees, you know, those oak trees with the Spanish moss, but also pines and cedars. And uh, the flowers are crazy beautiful. And in the wintertime, my favorite thing about camellias is that they bloom in the winter, which is around my birthday. My birthday is January 7th. You just look around our yard and, and the whole property and you see this insane production of peppermint pink camellias and deep red camellias and just utter beauty. So the only downside of living in heaven on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, aside from, you know, the intense racism and horrifying history of a lot of that region but as far as the physical beauty of the place and how connected I am to the land the downside of living there is hurricanes and when I moved down to Alabama I knew I was moving to the front lines of climate change it's actually one of the main reasons I wanted to live there is because as a climate activist I knew that the Gulf Coast is incredibly vulnerable and has already seen where I live about a foot of sea level rise. And so I moved down there with the purpose of honoring that place and witnessing it and experiencing it. But I did not take into account how truly stressful and traumatic living on the front lines of climate change actually is. Um, I knew it 
intellectually. I did not know it as a, you know, a physical and emotional experience. And when these hurricanes start to form out in the Gulf, you, first of all, pray that they don't come towards you, which you also feel very guilty about because you're praying that they go to someone else. (laughs) And there's this very mixed emotion of of terror that they're going to come for you and guilt that you're wishing them on someone else. But with the Gulf waters so hot, they're the hottest they've ever been in the history of humans being able to measure them anyways. These storms are increasingly dangerous. Probably anywhere from 24 to 48 hours before a storm hits, we have to stop whatever we're doing. (laughs) So stop work, um, stop any other projects we have uh, or priorities in our life, and we have to, to shore up the property. So you just basically pin everything down. You get the boats out of the water. If it's a bad storm, you board up all of the windows and you I, you have to have an evacuation plan. I'm always a fan of evacuating. Uh, my husband is much more committed to staying because he wants to protect our home. And, it, and to be fair, it is utterly beautiful. But I don't, I don't like risking my life if I can avoid it. Um, so this one, Hurricane Sally, started forming. We stop what we're doing. We're, we clean up the property. We get everything locked down. And keep in mind, this is the middle of COVID, too. <laughs> so um, it has been a traumatic summer. This is September of 2020, just death pervading our entire world. We get the property ready. It's supposed to come in as, as, as a tropical storm west of us. So we don't even, you know, we think we might get some outer bands being on the west or being on the east of the storm isn't the greatest place to be. That um, can be one of the more dangerous places to be. But it was further enough away and it was a small enough storm that we really didn't think that it was going to be a big deal. So we didn't evacuate. And that night, I remember I drank like a bottle of wine because I was anxious and went to bed at like 9 or 10. There was no reason to be afraid for our lives. About 1 o'clock in the morning, we wake up to the lights blinking and um, we're like, what's going on? And we check our phones and the storm has turned at the last minute which is very unusual storm behavior. And it has intensified from a tropical storm to a high two, almost three. And it is a very, very wet storm, which means it's just, it's got the humidity and the hot waters over the Gulf directly related to climate change has been making these storms just dump water, which makes it way more dangerous. And it's a bad thing coming straight at you. And we have less than two hours. The water from storm surges have never made it to our house. But this one was within 15 feet of our house already. And the storm surge was still like six hours away or the peak storm surge. So we're like, there's a very good chance that we're going to get flooded out. We live in a one-story house, like just envisioning all of these horrible storm scenes of Harvey and Katrina and people having to take sledgehammers to their roofs to get a helicopter evacuated. Also, my 90-year-old grandfather lives two houses down. He's disabled. He's in a wheelchair. My 70-year-old aunt is down there taking care of him in addition to his caretaker. 
and we don't have a plan. You know, you can't, there's no evacuating out, out of the town at that point. Um, but we went over there to check in with her. The water is surrounding half of the house and it, it looks like a raging river. And it's like a foot below the windows. And so we're thinking there's a good chance that this could flood. So we decide to evacuate to a neighbor's house that was on much higher ground, that wasn't surrounded by trees. I have like 20 minutes to pack up my dogs, my cat, all of our computers and phones. And then like, you know, 10 minutes maybe to think about what are the things in this house that I, that are so important to me that I don't want to lose. And so I just throw like a box together of favorite books and, you know, jewelry that my, you know, mother had given me, um, little notes. It's so weird to think about in that situation. Like, what do you take? I took my, my dog pie, who's the love of my life, her ashes, throw everything together haphazardly in a box and we basically break into the neighbor's house because we knew where the key was leave the dogs who are freaking out for understandable reasons and our clothes our computers and go back to get my grandfather the storm at this point is is very dangerous in a moment like that there are no lights because all the lights are out the only lights you have are the headlights on a car And it's raining so hard that you can barely see past even with the headlights. So you're really driving pretty blind. It sounds like you're in the middle of a washing machine, but with like sticks. Like there's just like crackling all around. You can hear the limbs coming down. And you're just praying that one doesn't come down on your car. So we go back to get my grandfather. We have to wheel him out of the house in like a foot of water, running back and forth to take their stuff, coming back to get them. We are so soaked. It it was no different than jumping into the ocean fully clothed. We get to the neighbor's house. There's already a foot or two of water there which is disgusting, and carry my grandfather's wheelchair and wade through the water. And we're finally in safety. You know, it's like you're in a dream or a nightmare, really, and you've just been through so much adrenaline and activity, it's really hard for your body and your mind to know what to do. And you're also praying that a tree doesn't land on the roof. We survive the night in like shock mode and the next day go out to survey the property. And it is just a war zone. We lost 24 trees, um, including a huge, huge oak that was ancient and fell exactly where we evacuated my grandfather. Like some huge pines, our cedar tree in our backyard, in our garden. It was just utter devastation. Wow, Anna Jane, that sounds like such a terrifying experience. And I hope our listeners underlined for themselves just the fact that because our climate is already warming, 
that these storms that once would have been already devastating are getting supercharged and are able to suck up and drop down so much more water than people are prepared for that it's getting harder and harder to warn people. It's getting harder and harder to, to predict sort of who needs to evacuate. And it's just getting more and more dangerous for folks like yourself who found yourself caught in the middle of something far more grave and dangerous than, than what you ever imagined. So I just cannot imagine what it was like to see your life flashing before your eyes like that. And I have to wonder at this point between this and your shipwreck of, of how your relationship has changed to, to this planet and to the sea in particular, which I also know is such a special place for you. Yeah. You know, the, the ocean is so, so much my home in particular, the Gulf coast and the water here. So it does, you know, I think it, it, felt a little bit like betrayal <laughs> you know like you're my friend um you're not you're more than my friend you're such you're an ex- an extension of me and but at the same time really more than anything it, I didn't blame the sea I blamed the humans the fossil fuel companies and the governments for for you know making these storms so much worse worse and um so just the I think the layer of knowing that this was preventable that these storms wouldn't be so bad or not for the actions of humans like and not humans collectively like particular humans with power in these fossil fuel companies and governments just it enraged me like it just you know it contributed so much more heartbreak and rage knowing that this didn't have to happen and and not just for me but for everyone on the gulf coast and that was that added a layer of just really difficult emotions, you know, that I didn't experience on the shipwreck. Like the shipwreck was nobody's fault but my own. <laughs> you know, like I got I got into a sailboat when I did not have enough experience. We got caught up on a storm, which happens. But Hurricane Sally had they can trace, you know, how much water it had, how it accelerated really quickly over the Gulf because the Gulf is so hot. I mean, that's it's directly attributable, at least how bad it was, is directly attributable to um, the climate crisis and, and fossil fuels. So it was rough for sure. So speaking of that, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to share with you the third chapter of my story, the third near-death experience that I encountered in, in 2020. And ultimately, I, and ironically, this near-death experience really, in a lot of ways, saved my life. So I'm nervous to share this story, but I, I'm also so so grateful to both be on the other side of it and, and really grateful for what I learned and, and just um, the amazing humans who have helped me along the way, including you. So hopefully it'll it'll help others. But basically, we we pick up three days after Hurricane Sally has hit, uh, which is in late September, about a month before the 2020 election. And so the first like maybe four or five days, it, it is survival mode. It's, you know, dealing with a war zone. It's keeping people fed, which is really the only thing I'm good at in a situation like that. I'm very shocked, like living in a daze, really drinking a lot because, you know, I was just kind of in high anxiety and stress and numbing mode. 
I do think that on a spiritual level, what was happening and almost like a physical level is because of my connection to that place, because it is an extension of who I am and almost, a, you know, a physical part of my being, the fact that it had been so harmed, you know, just that had this violence perpetuated on it and a violence that was largely preventable. I physically and spiritually felt that. One of Forrest's um, parents at his school had, like, graciously offered to get us a hotel room. And so we Forrest drives me out there, and he's just going to drop me off and go back to continue cleaning up. And I had, like, two or three days where it was just me. It was the first time I'd really been able to think for, like, over a week at that point. And there was quiet. And I just automatically went into a manic depressive episode. My doctor, he's pretty convinced that it was a form of PTSD intersecting with the fact that I am bipolar, that and basically the storm and the PTSD from the storm triggered this like mental health breakdown. <laughs> and so I I didn't work. I basically drank 24-7, 4 o'clock in the morning, the actual morning. It didn't matter because I just wanted to sleep. Like I was just so tired. And I couldn't force myself to sleep because when you're manic, you can't sleep. And I was drinking a ton. I was taking weed gummies. I was taking actual sleeping pills and anxiety medicine, which I'm prescribed to. Eventually, after like a crazy amount of bourbon and sleeping pills, I did finally like sleep for like a couple of hours. And I was familiar with kind of depression and manic episodes, but I had never had them together where I was like deeply depressed and also manic. And it is, it was utterly terrifying. And I, I just felt such a deep sense of pain and fear and unsafety. I did go through like pretty intense suicidal ideation where I was just sitting out by the water, by the ocean, because this hotel was on the water. And drinking bourbon because I was basically drinking bourbon 24-7 at that point and I was just kept like a vividly imagining myself just walking out into the sea and just disappearing I was so wrecked you know I was so incredibly sad and grief-stricken, and I so tired, and I couldn't force myself to sleep. And I think that that, what people don't understand about suicide is that it's oftentimes not a desire to die. It's just like such utter exhaustion. And that's how I felt. And I, I kind of wanted that at that point. Like, I just wanted the sea to take me. A couple of days later, my husband did show up and could immediately tell that something was very wrong. Um, and when you are manic like that, you're very verbal. <laughs> and so I, I was very forthright with the fact that I was having suicidal thoughts. 
And he immediately called my psychiatrist and was like, something's very wrong. And so we went to my psychiatrist who graciously got me in that day. We both explained the whole situation. You know, he felt like it was probably a form of PTSD sparking uh, a manic depressive episode that was also very connected to how much I had been abusing substances, particularly alcohol. And it was agreed very quickly that I needed to go to treatment, that it had gotten that bad. And I, you know, Forrest brought it up in the car and I just immediately was like, yeah, sign me up. Like, I don't know how to get myself out of this. And I don't think it's something that just Forrest and my mom can help me do because <laughs> I had, you know, it had been like years since I had really had pretty uh, intense mental health issues and, and substance abuse issues, um, particularly alcohol. And I would do fine for a couple of months and then something would trigger me, usually politics or some sort of horrible climate impact. On the day of the hurricane, RBG died. <laughs> something like that would happen and it would trigger a downside. This last spiral was terrifying and it was dangerous you know to have that level of suicidal ideation and also just dangerous in general I knew at that point that I was either going to go crazy and or crazier than I was at that point or I was going to die and I didn't want to do either of those things and I you know was working on an op-ed with the with the Biden campaign I was had all these plans to to organize and to use whatever voice and talent I have on the election and I couldn't I just had to walk away within a week I was in treatment and it was called a dual diagnosis treatment center because basically my psychiatrist was like, we can't get your bipolar under control until you stop drinking. I get on a plane to go to treatment the first time I've been on a plane <laughs> since COVID started. And I just feel very calm. I purposely <laughs> chose a 6 a.m. flight so I wouldn't be tempted to drink. But they still offer you alcohol on 6 a.m. flights. And also come to find out later that it's very common to drink on the way to rehab, but I didn't. I was just really reconciled to the fact that I was doing this. I was ready for it. You know, I didn't want to keep going through that trauma and pain over and over again. And I knew that I was not going to be any good. Like, it amazes me the amount of of work that I was able to do over the previous couple of years, just given how erratic my emotional state was. It was a very strange kind of stripping down of who I was and who I envisioned myself to be. And it tells you a lot about who I am, that it was when these problems, these mental health issues started interfering with my work that I started to get serious about dealing with them. It wasn't the impacts that it was having on my family or even myself. It was, it was the impacts it was having on my work because that's how tied I am to my activism, my work in climate. It is a very big part of who I am. And when I could no longer do it well, it really scared me because it's the great love of my life beside my dog pie and my husband. <laughs> um, you know, this work. I love working on climate. And so, yeah, I wanted to get this handled. <laughs> I was I was going into Olivia Pope mode. I was ready to get it get it done. So that's how I showed up. I was basically in this like 
it's the only treatment center I've ever been to, so I don't know how to compare it to others, but it was essentially like a spa meets a jail. (laughs) So a month of healing and deep, deep work on myself and getting healthy physically and emotionally and spiritually. And the next month was absolute magic, (laughs) like hard, like very hard to kind of go to such an incredibly low and scary place and and try to dig yourself out of it. I I had to go to the lowest possible place I could go to before I could get to a place where I could I could get out of it. And I did. And I hope that anyone who is listening to this knows that you know you can change. I am a testament to that and you can get help and we will put support lines and, and resources in the show notes. And you shouldn't be ashamed. No one should be ashamed. This life that we're living, this world that we're living in, the insanity of our current economic and political systems and how abusive they are and how they are creating mass death and destruction and harm especially for the most vulnerable people, the unfairness and injustice of the way that we have set up our lives and our society. And I don't actually, I don't even want to say we, (laughs) I want to say the way that people in power, particularly older, white, wealthy men have set up our lives and our societies is a death spiral and it's crazy making. And I I understand, like that was actually something I told myself a lot when I would go through those those spirals and those really dark periods was like, what does it matter if I'm fucked up? The whole world is fucked up. And it's easy to go there. It makes sense <laughs> given the world that we live in. Like what is that that quote about being sane in an insane world as its own form of insanity or something like that. Like the fact that we're expected to remain sane and healthy given the circumstance of our lives right now is an enormous amount of things to ask. And I totally understand why I couldn't handle it and why millions of people struggle with these issues. It makes a lot of sense to me. But I also know that it can get better that you can get help, you can change. And I know that I can't help anyone if I lose myself in the process, that part of the work is healing and part of the work is staying healthy. And now I don't look at therapy or exercise or spiritual practices, meditation, walking, even swimming. Swimming has become such an important part of my existence. And it's so ironic to me that the ocean, the sea, the mother sea, as I like to call her, has been what brought me closest to death on three different occasions, or at least was a part of that. But it's also where I've generated the most amount of healing, I think, is just being in the water and feeling connected to this place and the water in particular. I don't view that stuff as separate from the work anymore because I need that stuff to stay sane and to stay creative and stay healthy. And I do my work far better when I am sane and healthy. So I do. I think we've just got to overhaul how we think about mental health in this country and the climate movement as we are entering in this new scarier era of climate impacts we can't 
pretend like this doesn't exist and that people don't struggle with this. I am testament to the fact that there is hope. It's a scary process, the death and resurrection, but it is possible. Anna Jane, I want to just climb through the internet and give you a giant hug. (laughs) (laughs) I am so honored that you would share the story with me and with our listeners. And I, I am really so sorry for everything that you have been through. And I know that you're not alone. I know that there are many other folks out there who are staring down the climate crisis and it is sending them into pits of despair that they wonder how they can climb back out of. And I, I believe that your courage in sharing this is going to reach out and touch and help a lot of people. So thank you. Mm, thank you. Yeah, it really was. It was actually, I mean, there's so many people, you know, who whose stories gave me not only the courage to get through these dark moments and to know that it was possible to get out the other side. I mean, I didn't always feel that way, but it was those stories that helped me keep going. But it was when Meghan Markle told her story about struggling with her own mental health and, and thoughts of suicide and just severe depression. Um I just remember thinking like that, that's brave, you know, like, and that had already, that had been, I had already gone through this, this year of hell. (laughs) And so, but yeah, I don't know. It really, it it just so encourages me to hear other people talk about their struggles um, because it's what helped me. But I think one really important thing to note about this experience that that still sits with me is and enrages me, frankly, is that my ability to get help was so rooted in my privilege. You know, like the mental health system in this country is abysmal and it is super unregulated. So even having really good insurance, like you still you have to jump through not even hoops. It's like, it, it's truly miraculous <laughs> to me to, and, and that I was able to find really good help because it was such a nightmare. You know, it was like we had to hire a broker to find the right treatment center for me. You know, good treatment for these kinds of issues is a nice car, you know, like it's, and there's no help. And like everyone at my treatment center who is a patient was white. Everyone came from means and like I wouldn't have been able to do this if my mother hadn't been really supportive. Like there's no way me and Forrest on our activist and teacher salary could have afforded something like this. And and, you know, even I I went to the treatment center that's close closer by for one day because our insurance covered it. And it was like a prison. Like and there was like this is in the middle of COVID and there's 60 people crammed into a room without masks on, uh, you know, like many of them coming and going because there were a lot of outpatient people. And I was just like, this is insane. Like, and this is like the nicer place, like the place that insurance covers. Like if you don't have insurance, if then I can't imagine (laughs) where you would end up. And I totally get 
why people end up on the streets or they end up in jail or they end up dead because there is no mental health support system in this country, particularly if if you are not a person of, of substantial means to get good mental health support. And so like, I remember going through this and being like, I am so incredibly thankful. Like this saved my life. But on the flip side, so many people don't have access to getting needed medical support. And I just think about as you know, the climate crisis gets worse, more and more people are suffering from PTSD from natural, you know, from these climate disasters. And it's really common for people to suffer from PTSD after something like this, like way more common than I would have thought. Um, but also just this, this, you know, increasing generalized anxiety and depression from living in this world right now that so many of us are feeling and, you know, particularly young people like that recent study that just came out that's like, Over half of young people don't have a lot of hope for their future, you know, or feel like the climate crisis is already negatively impacting their lives. Like, just really severe mental health crises, you know, that is happening on top of the climate crisis and is so interrelated. And I really worry that if we don't fix our mental health system in this country, we're headed for even more disaster. Um, so for me, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, mental health care is a cl- is climate action because they're inextricable. And it has everything to do with justice and climate justice because so many people don't have access to good mental health care. Well, you know, this little season here, um, we put this together because we both had experienced some pretty profound loss or losses. And we had the sense that the lessons that we have drawn from those dark moments, that that was possibly something that might resonate with, with others. Um, I think one of the things, you know, and you have just shared a big one, (laughs) a big one of yours that, uh, that is connecting some things that folks may not have connected for themselves. And, you know, these, these insights that you get on the other side of a harrowing experience and that, is by no means advocating for <laughs> for people to have harrowing experiences in their lives <laughs> by any means, but it's an acknowledgement that we have all, I think, at some level, like you just said, um, in this past year, whether it's uh, living through a climate disaster, whether it's losing a loved one to COVID or otherwise, whether it's witnessing these systems that we either took for granted or didn't understand kind of being exposed around us, around policing, around the fragile state of our democracy, um, around the infrastructure, this sort of social safety net around COVID that just turned out to not be there. I mean, I think we have all had an experience of loss and I, that I think you and I both wanted to draw out how to find wisdom through those, how to get yourself to the other side of them. And again, not to, not to endorse having them. Yeah, (laughs) We would not wish this on anyone. Um, But I I think, you know, throughout this whole journey of our podcast, really ever since the beginning, I think we have been trying to pull, pull the wisdom that we need as, as climate activists from all these different threads of our lives. And this, this is a really important one that I think everyone has gotten much more 
familiar with over the past year of, of loss. And, and I guess, you know, one thing that I am interestingly enough, maybe, um, taking out of this myself is actually the importance of joy Mm. and the importance of presence. And that for me, having been through the year that I've been through losing my dad, selling our childhood home, living through the same year as everyone else, that I am very intentional every day about putting joy in front of me as an act almost of resistance, as an act of intention about the kind of life that I want to live and the kind of spirit that I want to bring to the things that I do because this world is beautiful and we are alive at potentially the most important inflection point in human history because we have this great privilege of being people who can still turn the climate crisis around. Yes, a lot of things are set in motion, but it is not too late. And we are in such an incredibly powerful moment. And I, amidst all, I think the loss has reminded me even more how important it is to put that joy at the center of the joy of being here in this beautiful world, still able to make a difference, doing that alongside brilliant people like you, clear-eyed about what's at stake, clear-eyed about how much is on the line for us as individuals and for all of us together, but with even more determination than before to just do everything possible and to do it, trying to be centered in joy as much as I can. Hmm, that's so powerful. And I, I completely agree. I think the biggest antidote for me <laughs> when I was going through hell, and aside from the courage of others to share their story and really great medical treatment and a supportive family, but it was very much like I remember just like going outside and sitting by the water and seeing like the pelicans and the herons and and almost feeling like hugged by the universe. <laughs> like, I don't know, just so grateful for, for the beauty and diversity and awe of this world. And there there's so much to still be thankful for and so much to be present for and, and certainly so much to keep fighting for. I also want to point out that a lot of people think when they think of mental health challenges, they think of all of the negative impacts of, of being neurodivergent. Um, you know, I'm bipolar. I've also been diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety. Um, but a lot of my favorite people in the world <laughs> have been diagnosed with some collection of mental health issues. A lot of the artists and the creative people and the leaders. There's actually been academic research that links bipolar to creativity, the same with ADHD. And there's like, you know, there is like truth to the fact that if you if your brain works differently, like my brain does work differently, I get really passionate, I can be super good at what I'm passionate about, I do tend to be more creative. But you know, that makes me bad at other things that most people or a lot of things that come easy to other people. So anyways, I just want to I want to shout out to all my other neurodivergent folks in the climate movement and who might be listening and say there's really good things that we bring to the world. It's important that we exist. We offer unique perspectives and unique skill sets and 
not to diminish, you know, the very real challenges that can come with it. It's hard out there, and I don't begrudge anyone for feeling like they're going crazy or for wanting to numb or however we've all, <laughs> you know, attempted to to make ourselves be okay during these really dark times. But I, I do think that, that it's just so important. It's such amazing medicine to to fight for joy and to fight for beauty and a lot of how I do that too is connecting with wonderful humans like you Marianne and and, um, I'm just so grateful for you and for our friends and listeners and yeah it's it's been a ride a journey but I there's no one else in the world I would have wanted to go on it with and there's no one you know, there's. I'm just so grateful to be not only um, having gone on this podcast journey with you, but also just to be in this fight with you. It is a fight for our lives and on so many levels, and it's really an honor to be to be fighting it with you. Well, I feel the same way, and we are certainly going to keep working together and cooking things up together. So please, uh, listeners, don't think we're hanging it up but we are going to hang up our microphones for a while uh maybe for good uh with no place like home so we want to say goodbye and we want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this journey and if you feel that there's going to be something missing in the world uh without no place like home uh, maybe that is a call to you to help pick up the conversation from wherever you are Uh, but we love you we love having been on this journey with you and Anna Jane nobody else I would have rather been on this journey with either if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts please call the National Suicide Lifeline anytime at 1-800-273-8255 And if you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health or with substance abuse issues, you can call SAMHSA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. Thank you to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by the folks at Quantum Spin Studios. Our theme music is by the band River Wireless, and we are distributed by Critical Frequency. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so that other folks can find the show. You can also join the conversation over at Twitter at NPLH Podcast. We also want to thank a couple of other folks who have made this show possible over the years. Brian Lightbody, Zach Mack, and Allison Wilson, we are so grateful for you. And most of all, thank you to you, our listeners. And remember, there is no place like home.